If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, this is Dr. Drew, and you are listening to This Life with Bob Foy and Dr. Drew. Here we are. Here's another episode of This Life with Dr. Drew and Bob Forrest. You're not going to believe who we have as a guest today. Hashtag it's, you live. Yes, it's go ahead. legendary. It's historic. It it's something I can't believe I'm doing today. Oh, good. Go ahead. Good for you. Well, I'm pleased to recommend to to welcome Dr. Robert Dupont. He's a back when government worked for people. Well, he'll tell you about it. He was a early, probably I don't think they called it White House Czar. He was. Drugs are. He was. What, what do they call it then? Health and Human Services. They call it the White House Drugs are from 1971 on. So that's President Nixon, <laughs> President Ford. He was a founding director of National Institute on Drug Abuse. He's the author of The Selfish Brain: Learning from Addiction. He's the founding president of the nonprofit Institute for Behavior and Health Inc., which is devoted to finding and promoting new ideas to reduce the use of illegal substances. Let me break it down for the for the average view. This is the real deal. This is the OG of OGs, yes, people. Yes. And and, uh, and you, I think you were followed at night of by my hero Alan Leshner. Is that right? Uh yes. Uh, Bob Schuster was in between, and then Alan, and now Nora Bokoff, who's the star of all the uh, people who've been at Nyland. Very nice. So um, where should we start this conversation? Uh, let's start with your history and how you got involved and what this, how this sort of, what your perspective is on all that now in, in the retrospective scope. Well, I uh, did my training at, uh, as you mentioned, uh, at Emory College and then Harvard Medical School and did my residency at Harvard and then came down to NIH uh, for finishing up. And at the age of 32, it was time for me to find a job. And the first time <laughs> in my life, uh, and I was to do that. And the question was, what in the world was I going to do with that medical degree and the training in psychiatry? Uh, and I, when I was at Harvard, I worked one day a week at a state prison, a Norfolk prison uh, in Massachusetts, which is a famous prison that Malcolm X served six years. He, he came in as Detroit Red, and he came out as Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Uh, from that. But right. I, I really, I was just fascinated by the people who were in prison, by their stories, uh, by what was going on with them. And I said, that, you know, that's my career. I'm going to work with these fellows and see what I can do to be helpful uh, with my medical education. And I had no better idea than that. Uh, I looked around the country of where was I going to do this. And at the time, uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, was uh, experiencing a, a crime epidemic. Lyndon Johnson was president, and he had uh, established a crime commission for the District of Columbia, and then a national crime commission. Uh, there was a lot of interest in, in that, so corrections was a, was a happening place to be. What well, was called uh, rehabilitation and, then, right? No, no, it was prisons. I, it, it <laughs> I know, prisons. but they were, they were starting to focus on rehabilitation, right? Well, I, I was interested in community corrections. I yeah. was interested in doing things with people in the community and started the halfway house program, for example, in the city and alternatives to incarceration uh, programs. But, but that's getting ahead of us just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started July 1st of 68. And at that point, 
Richard Nixon was running for president. I'm a lifelong Democrat, uh, and uh, I never thought he would be elected. That wouldn't be possible. Uh, and uh, he called Washington the crime capital of the nation. Uh, and so he was elected, and I thought all the things I was going to do were, were dead, uh, not going to happen. And uh, lo and behold, he uh, decided he really wanted to do something about crime in the city, and all of my ideas were suddenly funded. Uh, Holy moly. In, in, that, in that context, uh, I took some uh, urine cups down to the D.C. jail, and uh, tested uh, for drugs, everybody who came in and found that 44% of them uh, had, were positive for heroin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I mapped the year when they first used heroin against the D.C. crime rate, they fit perfectly. Mm-hmm. And that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was a big deal. And what it did for the first time was give some ideas about one of the big elements of crime, what was driving it. And then Bob DuPont, who was still trying to find his way, said, okay, now you've figured out the heroin is driving the crime epidemic, what do you do about it? Uh, and that's when I started to learn about heroin addiction treatment. Uh, and it took me around the country, particularly to Vincent Dole and Marie Nicewinder in New York with the methadone program. And uh, February, excuse me, on uh, September 15th, uh, 1969, I started the first methadone program in the Washington area. Uh, and over the next three years, we treated 15,000 heroin addicts. And lo and behold, the crime rate was cut in half in the city. Overdose deaths fell dramatically. Uh, and we demonstrated that uh, a, a massive program in an area, a, a significant area in the nation's capital, uh, could have a, a major impact on, uh, on, on the crime problem and the drug problem. Uh, and that uh, landed me in the, in the White House and, uh, at, as the head, of, uh, the head of NIDA. But it also got me a, a lifetime of fascination with what's going on with drugs, uh, what do you do about it? Uh, and uh, of course, in my, that, that was 50 years ago, just exactly 50 years yeah. ago. Uh, and uh, in all that time, many things have happened. Uh, methamphetamine, uh, crack, for example, lots of things have gone on, uh, but nothing like what's happening now. This is, this is the, by far the biggest attention uh, this problem has had uh, in the last 50 years. and. Uh, it's 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 an exciting area, uh, and I'm just uh, grateful for the opportunities that uh, that crazy idea I started with has uh, had led me into. Well, when I knew that I was going to be able to talk to you today, the first thing I wanted to know was you were there at the beginnings of drug treatment that was different than alcohol treatment, right? Yeah. Uh, different than Hazelden model, which I just always call it the Synanon model, right? Yeah, yeah. So you must have met Dietrich. You must well, have I met him. I didn't, but, but I'll tell you something. He was from Toledo, Ohio, and he came to my parents' wedding in Toledo, Ohio, and wow. I got pictures of him. Uh, at their wedding, Chuck Diedrich, before he went to Santa Monica. Uh, but, but that's right. If you go back to 68, the dominant forms of drug treatment uh, in the country were civil commitment, which is what they were doing in California and New York State. You guys but, are a little Phoenix, Phoenix House in New York. Phoenix House. Therapeutic communities. But they're was, therapeutic communities. They so, were all But the government had always shown a little interest in this, in that they had that place in Kentucky. Oh, yes. That was started, the the law was 1929. The first program was started in Lexington, Kentucky in 1933. Uh, And this was called the Narcotic Farm. Uh, And it was a research program 
that was interested in uh, understanding about heroin addiction, uh, but it also was a source of research. And uh, it's very interesting that, that the research for the whole world on addiction in those in those early years uh, was from uh, the Lexington, Kentucky. That was where the center was, the Addiction Research Center. Uh, and uh, uh, it's still the truth that the United States is the major source of funding for research on addiction for the whole world. So just so you know, so people keep asking me now, it's 2018, they ask me what to do, what to do, what to do about this opioid crisis the last 10 years, right? And I have, I've racked my brain. I don't know. You have different modalities and different solutions for different populations, right? But one thing that rose up in that heroin addiction post-Vietnam in America yeah. in the 70s was these community-based, almost cults, I hate to say it, no, Which was right. sinning on Delancey Street, Phoenix House. Phoenix House and Delancey Street till, still remain to this day, right? Honestly, they work. Uh, they work. They work. Well, they work. They work, but uh, in, the, in, the origin, in the beginning, they were going to fix people. So you went in there for a couple of years and you came out there. And I think you guys know, like I know, that there is no treatment that has ever fixed any addict. Right. Yeah. Uh, absolutely not. The best that treatment can do uh, is to help an addict understand what the heck's going on with him or her and put them on a path to recovery. But recovery is a process that you're going to work on for years. And the treatment programs be helpful in that. But the treatment programs often uh, have a, a little bit of uh, exaggeration of their importance. Yep. Uh, what, what that is. 100%. Uh, but but I want to. You guys are going to jump to the point. Let me let me jump right now. There's something going on now that has never happened before, and it is a phenomenal thing that's happening. And that is the emergence of the recovery movement. Uh, we've got uh, 22 million Americans who are in recovery from uh, drug problems, and this is a huge thing uh, that, that's happened. And and there's a the testimony of people themselves about how that happened and that the stories of people with addiction have three parts they're all dramatic first of what your life was like when you were using uh and that's usually a pretty tough story uh it's exciting a lot of drama to it but uh an awful lot of pain uh in that and then the second part of the story is what happened to get you to stop something happened and there's always a story about what that was that happened that that got the person to turn a corner and then the third part of the story is what your life is like now. And this is one disease where the cure is not going back to where you were before the disease, but somewhere a hell of a lot better than where you were before. I've, the I've always said that. That's, that's what Drew always said. That's what intrigued me about the disease. The, the recovery there's the first nothing part. else like nothing that. Nothing in medicine. And most of, most, you're a doctor, too. Yep. There's almost no doctors. They can't understand that. If you no. start talking about the spiritual dimensions of recovery, their eyes glass over and they think you've been possessed. Yep, yep. I was I, I was taking people from acutely ill to chronically ill, and here was a disease that went from dying to better than they ever knew they could be. Crazy. Exactly. Well, and then inspiring yeah. other people. One yeah. of the things, addiction is contagious, but so is recovery. Yep, yep. Well, one of the things that I've, I've been looking at the last 10 years also is what happened. All right. What happened to me is I got arrested and I was facing prison and the judge was not joking and I couldn't buy my way out or manipulate my way out or anything. And it forced me to say, you either want to keep using drugs or you want to go to prison. And it was that clear to me. And that's what 
Now they don't. Uh, now they uh, don't uh, threaten prison with drug addicts because they're all sick people with a disease. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the other thing, one of my best friends, one of my best friends got sober and I couldn't believe it because his wife, who he loved, said, I'm leaving you unless you stop drinking. Right. Remember, Divorce, part, sure, you're talking about that second part. That yeah, that second really, part is critical. And that's why we're having such failure. And why? I understand that. Because we want to normalize the addiction. Oh, that's what's happening. We, we want to make it seem. Like it, the, the addict is an innocent victim. Yes, yes, that. And, and, and we're going to understand him. And what we're going to do is make his life safer and happier while he's using. And then sooner <laughs> or later, he'll come around and figure out that this is a bad idea. Yes. Uh, this is not a great strategy. No. And Dr. Pot, I would argue the, the research is all structured that way, too. They, it's all short term. They believe the addict. They don't do observed urines. They do lots of questioning and then believing what the addict tells them. And when people yeah. are lost to follow up, they're just simply taken off the data the form rather than considered a, an, a positive, you know, a relapse. It, the yeah. research is a mess right now. You know, I used to, Dr. DuPont, I used to look at the methadone program as a failure. And because you, you rarely saw the people that were on the brochure that I'm sure you have <laughs> something to do with putting together. It was a man with a briefcase and he's going off to work with a hat and suit, right? And when I would be at the methadone clinic, I was on methadone off and on for 11 years. When I'd be there, there was nobody that was going off to work, right? So I was in your neck of the woods. I'd re done a geographic to Richmond, Virginia. I'm on the methadone in Richmond, Virginia. Every morning, there's this just absolutely fa fabulously dressed woman who come. comes it, with all of us near-do-wells, right? <laughs> that are hanging around the methadone clinic. And she'd come, and one day she happened to be in front of me in line, and I said, do you know, does it ever dawn on you that you don't really fit in here, right? And she said, oh, honey, I belong here more than, more than you. I've been on since 1971. This was in 94. And uh, I said, well, what, what, but you look so together. And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was one of the original New York City uh, urban uh, outreach programs, got her education. She has, uh, she is a dean or, uh, of education at, Uni at Virginia University. And that brochure was real for that case of the original people you guys were trying to help. I think you were more hands-on with them and giving them an opportunity that they understood, a pathway to success, that by the time I got to the methadone clinic, I wasn't looking at success. I was just looking at survival. And I think that's what's happening with Suboxone. There was research done with professionals about Suboxone that they were succeeding in becoming deans of, of colleges and bankers, and they were functioning at a high level. Now it's coming to the masses from West Virginia, Tennessee, multi-generational poverty, multi-generational uh, lack of education, right? Multi-educational abuse, multi-generational abuse, right? And you're thinking you're going to give Suboxone to them and they're going to become bankers and lawyers and doctors. <laughs> it's this, It's a very similar story as how methadone was sold, is how Suboxone is being sold. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, but but uh, you're gonna you're gonna force me uh, to to uh, uh, shift gears here uh, because uh, that public sector treatment program is not a bad thing. Uh, I, uh, I it took me a long time uh, from where I started to understand about recovery to, to discover right, hate right, right. Minnesota model treatment uh, and, and really. Uh, 
uh, like like you, uh, uh, I, I was uh, uh, have a practice of my own, and and my patients taught me. Uh, it wasn't reading a book or anything else; it's just watching recovery happen, uh, and uh, that that changed my thinking. But but I still think that there's a place for the uh, public sector programs and the people who are doing that. And I don't think they're stupid. Uh, I think they, they, they're they well-meaning, and I think they're also helping in a lot of ways. What they're doing is bringing people into health care in large numbers, and I think that's a very useful thing. Well, we, we agree. The, the problem, problem is it's getting applied everywhere all the time. That's what's, To that's all what, populations. Yeah, that's what's bothering us. To all us. populations. Whether yeah. you're a 50-year-old, a high-functioning adult, except, or a 19-year-old. Except one population. One population. Doctors. Doctors, Doctors can't take pilots. Suboxone. Yeah. How come that is? <laughs> Well, you know, I did the first study of the state uh, physicians' health programs in the country. Uh, I started over a decade ago, and the question, uh, even then, was an old guy. And I was thinking, you know, how good could treatment really be? How, what kind of, how, how would you make it so long-term recovery was the expected outcome of treatment as opposed to relapse, which is the way it is now? Uh, and I had doctors who were patients of mine in my practice, and I observed what was happening to them, and I was fascinated by this. And so uh, I, I developed a study, a first study of, a, of a, the nation's physician uh, program, and what we found was, yes, indeed, they, they do a great job. 80 to 90 percent of the people succeed on a single episode, yep. never mind a repeat episode to it. Uh, and, and then we did a follow-up. So we said, well, that's because they're getting tested and they lose their license if they uh, use. 78% uh, of them never had a single positive test for any alcohol or drugs. Uh, and so then we did a follow-up study five years after the last required test. 96% of them were still in recovery uh, at that point. And we asked them, uh, what made the difference for you? How, how did you get here? The number one answer they had, you guys will understand, was the 12-step program. Well, not that just not just twelve step, but but uh, but a special twelve step program, one with their peers. No, 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 no. You didn't there, find there that are, there are caduceus meetings for doctors. There's no doubt about it. But the doctors I know uh, really uh, groove on the, the general uh, uh, AAN. We had that too. We have for sure. They yeah, but I it. what I think what Drew is saying is I think that that the doctors diversion program, which is what we call it now, used to that yeah. doctor driven <laughs> th therapeutic community is the only way that doctors are getting. Wait, it's a not, bridge. Oh, it's you know, a bridge. A, a therapeutic community was a residential program. The, the, the Caduceus meetings are not residential. No. They're, they're like other meetings. Right. They're out That's right. That's yeah. right. So don't call it a therapeutic community. No, no. No, but I'm saying that initial, initially their license is taken, they can't practice medicine, they're in the doctor's diversion program. That This is how yeah. it works these days. So, and then they are suggested by other doctors to go to 12 steps. And well, that it's, the, yeah, but, it, but, but that it's by other doctors is no. the only way I think they, they would go. Know, it depends. Like sometimes state licensing boards, sometimes the well-being committees, it's different, different people send them. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. Dr. Pond, hang on one second, we're going to take a little break, we'll be right back. I want to mention our friends at Bergamot Sport, a supplement that provides all the cardiovascular benefits of the original Bergamot, but with additional additives designed to aid athletes and those with active lifestyles. Bergamot Sport is recommended and used by professional and college athletes throughout the world, helps them improve stamina, reduce recovery time, and muscle inflammation. 
Bergamot Sport is informed sport certified so athletes can feel confident that it's all natural and it has been banned substance tested. But even if you're not a pro athlete or just getting a workout once a week or so, Bergamot Sport is still worth a try. It can help you work out harder, recover easier without worrying about being sore or tired the next day. I've used the products myself. I've recommended them to patients. We use them in our family. And I've done so just as physicians and cardiologists around the world have done. And Bergamot Plus is excellent for what's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which has just passed all other forms of liver disease in terms of causing cirrhosis. So it's something that is so it's something that is a major health issue presently and needs to be paid attention to. For a limited time, our listeners can save 10% on their order by entering code DRDREW at checkout. That is D-R-D-R-E-W, all one word. Try Bergamot Sport for yourself. Visit bergamot.com. That is B-E-R-G-A-M-E-T.com. Or just click the Bergamot banner at drdrew.com. We're back. We're here with Dr. Robert DuPont. He's a psychiatrist. So we were touching on the doctor's diversion program, and I'm just big on who receives the person uh, and suggests to them to go to the 12-step world is critical. And and Well, it's, it's, it, it's called the warm handoff. Yeah. And that's the, actually been shown to be very important. It's critical who that person there, is. There's a study now that shows that they did a quick study that, uh, oh, who was it I saw quoted? It was someone in the California Society of Addiction Medicine that um, they studied a uh, referral where somebody came in from the program and said, hey, let me take you to a meeting tonight. I'll meet you. Let's exchange phone numbers versus getting some education on a pamphlet. The conversion to a meeting with the pamphlet was zero. And, right. the, con- and the conversion with the warm handoff was like 75%. Yeah. Right. So. And so that warm handoff, we need people, we need the 12-step community to step up right now and rise up and start reading our own literature again and working with others, well, and reaching the, and out, about, being proactive. And there's about to be a big review a study that, that shows that the 12-step does work, is evidence-based. It t- takes itself alongside other treatments. It just happens to be free it's and, under sa- attack, and save know. tremendous amount of healthcare dollar, but it, it takes its place alongside with other treatments, and it has a, has a great track record and trim- extreme efficacy when you do it. When you do it, but it's under attack it's by been Big under Pharma, attack. and it's under attack. And here's another thing: the most searched internet word about addiction treatment is alternative. People pay fifty dollars a pay per click for the word alternative to 12 steps. Sheesh. That means the population themselves are don't have the opinion that that the public did in 1943 of Alcoholics Anonymous and we need to change that as members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, there let me is give you an example. I have a friend who is running a very big treatment program here in Washington area. Uh, and if he told the patients who were coming protected patients that he was based on the 12 steps He'd have no patient. It's <laughs> terrible. Every single patient who comes in has tried the 12 steps and they don't work for them. They all believe that. Yes, they they're believe that. that. And, and they haven't even, they in all, fact, they haven't even tried so there, it. There's a kind of seduction goes on. Oh, you don't have to go to the 12 steps. We'll work this out. Mm. But that's where most of them are going. Uh, and the other thing he said, if I said that my program, my, my people coming into my program, uh, look, we're going to have you get an intensive outpatient program. It's a very good program. We're going to take care of you and all. But you're going to have to go to meetings for the rest of your life and not drink alcohol or use drugs. That would be a killer. <laughs> I didn't want to sign up for that. <laughs> Nobody would sign up for that. So, so there's a little bit of a sales problem here. Right. Uh, that, that, and the root is really not somebody who doesn't understand. It's the 
the addicts themselves who don't want what's on offer. They 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 find it uh, uh, it doesn't solve the problem. And they are a generation, the millennials in particular, a generation that has been told you you put something in your mouth to fix yourself. You put right. a pill in your mouth. You have right. a, attention deficit disorder. You take a pill. You have uh, academic problems. You take a pill. You have a shaky leg. You take a pill. Right? Yeah. And so they are the first generation that's been just bombarded with medical marketing. Right? That there is a pill for every problem. And talking or or listening, right, uh-huh. or being honest or being ethical, these are things that they they have no they find not very valuable. So we have to do a better job at engaging them. That's all I'm saying. What do you guys think of the idea of saying that the, the hallmark of addiction is dishonesty? Is honest. Yes, there you go. In a nutshell, that is it. You and I say the same thing, but we frame it a little different. Here's how I say it. The way I say it is, if my patients did not lie to me, their diagnosis would be in question, and they should be seeing somebody else. (laughs) So, so, and in order for them to get, and and then people ask me, how do you know your patient's sober? Well, if they're being, if they're not being rigorously honest, I don't know. If they're rigorously honest and they, you know, and they test clean. Pretty, I can pretty much stand and behind being, them. And being one of these liars, I know that I could have passed a lie detector test <laughs> believing what lie I was telling Dr. Drew at the time. Yep. Uh, it's the self-deception that is so insidious about addicts and about addiction. Well, and I, I found that one of my skill sets was, first of all, trying to ferret out what was true and what wasn't and not being angry if a patient lied to me, God forbid. But more importantly... Trusting my instincts and calling out immediately whatever I thought was real or bullshit about that person. And that moment of feeling understood, even when they don't understand themselves, like they don't know they're BSing sometimes, that's very powerful. Yeah. If you can call it out and they 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 didn't realize they were BSing and you know that's that's somebody that's willing to work with you usually right then. So I, I, yeah, I what, what I say is the, the way this works is you have to suffer enough to surrender. Yeah. And maybe you haven't suffered enough yet. But yeah. I tell you, I, I said, I said, you go out there and do more research for yourself. We all, that's the stuff we say. But here, but this, this phase of this research, I'm complete of mine. But so I know it just gets worse. And so when you are had enough, then you surrender and you, we're, we're going to get But that support. model works so well with people like me because the risk in 1988 when I was told that at Hazelden was so low. The with 3,600 people annually dying in the United States from opiate overdose to yeah. almost 100,000 now, we don't have the luxury of yeah. saying go suffer some more because it's the leading cause of death of young people. So what do we do? And that's where your friend Nora will come in from NIDA and say they need Suboxone just to survive. And and it's just a mess. Nora, Nora is our friend. Nora I, is I our know. Friend. I, so I, you know, I used to idolize her. I have I have some some problems with just looking at one part of the problem. One part of the problem is the mortality, the death rate, right? That's not reason to wholly embrace one solution to the problem, which is Suboxone, right? It's not the only problem we have. One of the things that, you know, go back to 68 when I got into this and how I got the methadone. Therapeutic communities are not scalable to the problem. 
They, right. they, they are they are a, a minor part of whatever you're going to do. They're very hard to manage. Uh, and I'll tell you what's happened to the diabetes communities in this country is they have gone over to the to the twelve steps. So they support the twelve steps. When I when they started, they were antithetical to the twelve steps because they they were going to fix people. When you came out of there, you didn't need any twelve right. steps. Right. Now they now the diabetes are 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 connected to the twelve steps, but. They're still, and they're wonderful. I like the therapies you use, but they're not scalable to it. And I, it's pretty hard to come up with something that's scalable. The well, the Peace Corps, other than the peace, the peace Corps, the WGA programs of, of, of the 40s, something on a mass scale to help people grow up, become responsible. There's, there's so much to be done because I believe this number is 20 20 million it's going to be 40 million by 2030 what drug the addicted? opiate the drug addiction no, in america I think, I think we're no going, you I can think... keep think it's going down drew i haven't met a 12 year old that doesn't smoke pot yeah. the, the pot you're you're not considering pot to be a drug now oh no i am in fact you're, you're i'm sure how old you are you got to call it weed dude <laughs> you, you can't call it pot anymore. so so with pot when you well, add you pot marijuana either it's cannabis yeah right. cannabis right. or or med- how about medicine it's right. just medicine right. doctors but when you when you look at 12 and 13 and 14 year olds that are smoking marijuana on a regular basis we haven't seen that problem and that problem has only just begun well Colorado saw it and it it it, it, it 29 it, states now i know and it will mm-hmm. be 50 and it will be 50 with no criminality within by 3030 I'm sure. So pot will be everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Well, they get more people arrested for marijuana in Colorado now than before legalization. The young people. Uh, yeah, and it yeah. has to do with it's illegal for kids, among other things. Yeah. But there are all kinds of other things. Think how many people are arrested for alcohol. Right. you got 1.1 million arrested for drunk driving. That's right. That's it's right. crazy. So, so, does not stop so what are, well, hold on a what are wait, the wait, solutions wait, wait. that you're looking at? Well, before you say that, let me just say that, Dr. Pondit, it's... It's surprising to us that the person that really brought methadone to bear is using our language and our perceptions of addiction and our sort of enthusiasm for full recovery. How how do you reconcile those two things? Is it that public-private dichotomy that you see? Well, I think that's 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 part of it. Uh, But but it really is. uh, I'm proud to be an American for a lot of reasons. But I'll tell you one of the top reasons I'm proud to be an American is because in 1935 in Akron, Ohio, that program was started uh, by a doctor and an unemployed salesman. Yep. Uh, and that is the quintessential American program. Yep. No doctors like us <laughs> involved in, in that program. That's right. Nobody's getting paid. Uh, no no licenses. Uh, no certification. Uh, you can't give money to AA. They don't want your money, no matter how rich you are. Uh, there's nothing like that. The, the drive of that, the millions of people uh, who are motivated uh, to help suffering addicts uh, find their lives, that, that is America at work, uh, and it, it's spreading all over the world. It's, it's, it's a miracle, uh, and uh, I, I am so uh, proud to put my name on in support of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that's clear. But... I think also that the uh, the uh, organized treatment, for example, Hazelton is now using medication. You guys don't don't, don't think you could understand that, uh, yeah. but I think that's a good thing uh, that Hazelton is doing. That. No, I'm the gap because the 
the war between the drug-free and the medication is a war that everybody loses. Uh, we got to find ways to get the other. Now, what's the big gist? Of, here's the peace plan for that war. And that is that the, uh, uh, the medication people have got to understand that the goal is long-term recovery. It, it's not a short-term. They have a little bit of reduction of drug use or let me let me just I'm going to interrupt you on that because this this is where we have a concern about it if you talk to our peers who are doing that suboxone prescribing where each yeah. of those guys or gals is supposed to take on 100 patients i couldn't handle 20 and i know what the hell i'm doing but they want to take oh, on a, they'll take 300 yeah they'll they'll take take a, right anymore. and and they've they've never seen abstinence they've never seen withdrawal they don't know anything about addiction they don't know anything about recovery that's who's prescribing to these guys now that's un, that's the part that bothers They're me assuming they, that's a serious problem they do not know recovery they yep. don't know what that means nope doesn't mean anything to them nope. and the other thing is they think their patients can't achieve recovery right that's right. That. Well, they never they don't really know what it is. They don't believe recovery exists. It's just some nonsense that was invented in Ohio. This is all doesn't stand up to scientific scrutiny. Blah blah blah. The, you know the, the 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 rap, and that that's the part that bothers me is that we have uneducated people, untrained people, inexperienced people dealing with hundreds of addicts. Now, if it's you know poly diagnosed with no support and homeless and then fine, great, they're going to save their lives. But if it's the average drug addict from, you know, back from Akron, back you know, the, the in and around Akron area, um, that's somebody that's not going to be served well and it's not going to go well. Well, I think it can stabilize people's lives. It really can. Yes, and, yes, and yes, it can. What I wanted, I was to finish off, I want to get those programs to integrate the 12 steps into what they're doing. Please. So every, everybody who goes to get those uh, pills, is going to be into uh, the the, uh, the recovery community, uh, and they define that as a goal. and And I want to have the people who are doing the drug free understand that those are medicines. And when you're thinking of medicine, if you take it the way it's prescribed, the problem is that most, I mean, many, maybe I would say most, but many may say many of the people who are on the medication assisted treatment are still drinking. They're still using. Oh the yeah, they are, and they're not they're, testing they're, for any of that. They're not testing for it. No, they don't test nearly enough. I think they were, the methadone programs are required to test for, yeah. not the suboxone. Well, we, uh, methadone turns out we're, we're about it because they call it harm reduction, and they think they, they, they're using less drugs. And right, that's, okay. that's right, and, and they're giving them huge supplies per month that is fueling yeah. a giant black market that we're seeing. We yes, said, so yes. methadone looks much more contained and much more structured. It is. Yes, it's it looks better to us. It looks better to us now. Yeah. What one little question I had for you back going back in that history. That that the person had to go every day to the clinic or every other day to the clinic and interface with the with the uh, the clinical the clinic staff. Who decided yes, that? That's a start. That's, that's who who who, who, who What was the decision making about that? Because what we're seeing is they're giving fourteen day supplies of Suboxone that are worth about six hundred dollars on the street. Uh, yeah. Somebody wise like you said, "Hey, we can't give them 14 days of methadone; they'll just sell it." <laughs> right. Didn't you? Or they'll overdose or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we had a lot of problems. We had methadone overdoses at the start, and that that was uh, how we learned. Mm. Uh, okay. To that overdose. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, buprenorphine doesn't produce death. Right. The way yeah, but you can trade it for heroin. I hate to tell you. I, I know, <laughs> and, and I and I don't like that part of it. It's really bad. <laughs> And if you want to talk about something really a malignant uh, association, 
is there's this, a certain analogy uh, between the buprenorphine and the, the uh, pain medicine with the with the uh, opiates yep. uh, kind of a thing where it gets oversold. I think that's that that's a that's a uh, connection. That's well, it's, yeah. it's 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 people it's people staking their careers on suboxone the way people stake their careers on pain is the fifth vital sign. Whenever you have a religious fervor around anything and not an open-minded scientific clinical approach, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem. Except, except a, lot of the, a lot of these people in, in addiction medicine think that the three of us are the crazy ones and not them. I know. Oh, no. Believe me, I know. And, and I try to stay open-minded, open-minded and, and rational and, and evidence-based. And There's going to be really good evidence-based material being published soon on, on 12-step and where it fits in the lexicon of treatment. It, it's it's about to be published. There's a very big review coming out soon. And I've been a big proponent. So I'm not against Suboxone anymore. I was initially. I was on it in the 1990s, early 90s, uh, buprenorphine replacement. But I'm open-minded now. I, I think there are huge parts of the population that could benefit from some sort mm-hmm. of stabilization sure, like that. Sure. Right? I don't like how it's executed so cheaply. To give 14 day supplies, right? That, that needs to be ironed out. But I don't think that 50 year old alcoholics, gainfully employed, you know, well educated people should be put on that drug. So I'm getting back to proper assessment. Get the client in front of you select, and assess them right, and, and, and select the treatment that right. would most succeed select for that the, patient. The right patient for the right treatment. That, there that needs to return back. You'd agree with that, Dr. DuPont, yes? Yeah, I do, but let me tell you something you guys don't know, and that is the, the, the methadone, you don't prescribe the methadone. Methadone is given by the program. The patient doesn't have a prescription for methadone. Right. But they have a prescription for the Suboxone. Uh, and the DEA will not let the doctors hold the, the, meth, the buprenorphine because they can't, the doctors can't hold the patient's medicine. But can't they make them go to the pharmacy every three days instead of every 14 days? I'm up for the three days. Drew, they'll still sign up. They'll still go. But I want to see them. I'd like DEA to change it so that the doctors can hold the the medicine and get them back every day. Oh, yeah. Well, that's so costly at this point. It's all, yeah, a lot of this is about cost, too. It really is. But there's a free service. There's a free service there in every community. They'll pick you up. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's helpful. Uh, yeah. So so I think I, I don't think we all three disagree on anything, frankly. I really don't. No. Yeah, I don't. Well, the, the only thing is the trashing of the medication-assisted treatment. I, I can't get into that the way you guys do. Well, Bob, Bob gets very well, excited no, about it. No, mine, mine Bob is... Bob got very excited for really, a while. And that's just... I'm a part of the industry that you guys aren't. I own a rehab center. I compete in that rehab center space. Um, it's... Medication-assisted treatment is what patients want. It's a patient-driven industry, right? And so when I'm railing against everybody's going Suboxone crazy, they're only going Suboxone crazy because there's so much profit in it. It's not the right thing to do for everybody, right? And so I've held off. I have no medication-assisted treatment, not a, not a medication-assistant track in my rehab. It's abstinence-based. I've watched some of my best friends who are abstinence-based believers just to make a couple of half million dollars more go to medication-assisted treatment. We we have to straighten up the treatment industry, and that oh, that that, 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 that is a big <laughs> thing to me. 
because really they're not going to talk to Nora. They're not going to talk to us and they're going to talk. They're going to go on the internet and search heroin addiction rehab. And then that person who answers that phone call is the most important person in that addict's life. And that person is trying to make money off them. Right. And so they get shoved into medication assisted treatment because that's what the insurance industry wants. Right. And I, I'm just a realist. I'm a pragmatist, but and I say outspoken things. I just think there's there's the right treatment for everybody. I'm only interested in people thriving. I'm only interested in people being sober, sober, real sober, not Suboxone sober, not Benzo sober, not smoking marijuana sober, sober, sober. And and we we need everybody needs to declare what they want, right? What they want to be a part of. Let, let me give you let me give you a line you can use in the future, Bob, that I think is very interesting. If you talk about the high science, people who are really in the science, they make a diagnosis. And what is the diagnosis? Opioid use disorder, yeah. alcohol use disorder, yeah. cannabis use disorder. It's as if the, the disease is specific to the chemical. And one of the things about the wisdom of the recovery movement is it never bought into that. Uh, if you're an alcoholic, you go to AA, but smoking pot uh, is, uh, a, you got a new sobriety day uh, in AA. Uh, and why is that? Why is it that the, the sophisticated people have got this screwy idea of what the nature of the disease is, and the people out in the community figured it out decades ago? And the reason for that is because they observe that the things go together. And that if you stop one of them and keep doing the other one, I had this methadone program and it did a pretty good job. But at the end, I went back and was talking to one of the people who had uh, uh, an early person in that program. We were all those guys and they were all dead. And I said, what happened to them? You know, and we went through it. They all died of alcoholism. Right. They all died of alcoholism. Right. Uh, and that's because they thought they were suffering from an opiate use disorder. Right. 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 And right. not addiction. Well, yeah, I want yes. I want to tell you, Methadone Clinic contributed to my sobriety and all of my friends. We were all in different clinics across the United States for years and years. And the, you could see it in your face every day that you were a slave to a system. It, it, it was a powerful message that if unless I got there by 10 a.m., I was going to be sick or have to pick up. Right. That servitude to the system wore away on me and my friends. It really did. In a good way. It, in a good way. Yeah, yeah. in a positive way. Like, we want to break free of <laughs> it this. It is not without. It is not without. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but the reality is that Suboxone, uh, the average, the, half of the people are gone from Suboxone within three to six months, and half of the methadone are gone within six to nine months. The, the problem is the patients vote with their feet. The, lots of them don't want to continue on that. It's what you're talking about. Even though the programs will keep them on forever. And by the way, I don't have any desire to try to get people off. If they're taking the medicine and not using other drugs, that would be fine. Yeah. Uh, to do that. Uh, but the patients vote with their feet. They don't mostly want to do that. You know, I, we were talking about those moments of change a minute ago, and and uh, I, there are different versions of it. I mean, some is, some people it's loss for you, loss of freedom. Sometimes loss of children. Sometimes loss of, of a marriage. But um, many times it's it. I, I I one of my concepts about addiction is that it has an interpersonal solution, and I've noticed that I've really looked at those moments of change very 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 carefully. And for many people that have these sudden moments of clarity, 
Not a yeah. dramatic moment, just a sudden moment. It seems to come out of nowhere. When you really interview them carefully, usually they have a new relationship that they've been involved with for a few weeks. A new, not a romantic relationship, just somebody that was, wasn't the kind of person they would normally hang out with, but they just sort of started hanging with them and talking to them and sharing personal things. And it really was sort of the new pair of glasses paradigm. They would see themselves through another, a new set of interpersonal glasses. And as a result of that, some of their denial would come down. And I can't tell how many of them would describe seeing themselves in a mirror as they really were, just suddenly seeing themselves. And, oh, my God. And then they would experience a very specific emotion, and that is disgust. And when they and, and disgust is a very powerful motivator. When, when they actually see themselves as they are, experience disgust, boom, the, the change begins. All right. And so that's well, one of the, I, I think one of the things that we really need to say is how degrading addiction is to character. Oh, yeah. Uh, how degrading it is to a person's life. How it gets them self-centered uh, and, and dishonest. Uh, it, it, it is an awful, cruel disease uh, in terms of taking over the person's thinking uh, and justification. The statistic that I use that, that Pink points this out very well is illegal drug users in the country spend $100 billion a year cash money for drugs. Hmm. The total treatment system in this country, private and public, is $34 billion. In other words, addicts themselves, often poor, are paying cash three times as much as all the treatment in the country. Now, how many dollars do active addicts spend of their own money on treatment? Not a lot. Oh, not a lot would be an understatement. 90% of people with substance use disorders do not think they have a problem and do not want treatment. Ninety percent. Yeah, there you go. And so, All part right. of part of our magic is getting through to them, figuring a way. Right? That's right. Well, we get through to them when when the suffering is enough. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, that's the sad the sad truth. But you know, back to the issue Bob was talking about how getting arrested. I started my career in the criminal justice system. Uh, it's now very popular to say criminal justice system is the enemy of the addict. Uh, that that, that mm. what we got to do is get the criminal justice system out. I'd say for lots and lots of people, the criminal justice system uh, is the engine of recovery. I agree. But, but I would not. I would not be alive, and I would not be here if no, it, one, it weren't it, for it, Judge it, Mira. It, it, Myra. it shouldn't be the mental health delivery system of last resort or first resort, but it, it should be part of the equation of what, of the again another modality of how. Well, we get not through. even a modality, a motivator. A motivator, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. drug court. The system doesn't usually deliver the service, yep. but it can get the patient to the service and get the patient interested in it. Uh, just like Bob got interested in it. And uh, the best example I can give you is, is Barack Obama's second drug czar. Uh, Mike Botticelli uh, got into recovery because he was arrested in a drunk driving accident. Yep, yep. Uh, and, and he'd never been to a meeting before in his life. Now he's 27 years sober, got a wonderful career, he's a great man, and it all happened because he got arrested. Dr. Pont, we appreciate you spending time with us. Really do. It's been a pleasure right. and a nice, privilege. Nice, yeah, and, and wonderful, to, pleasant surprise. Yeah, on and, a to, Sunday. To, and to hear our, you know, the, to to hear someone that you know sees it and feels it and understands it the way we do is very reassuring. And so we we appreciate it. And we appreciate your work. Well, I appreciate I the time. What you're doing and the message you're carrying. We're trying. It's the same one. The same one. We're all, those of us that actually know this condition. We all seem to end up in the same place with the same message. So here we are. And we're inspired by the experience of recovery. Yes, yes it is. That's what inspires. One hundred percent. 
And we'll have to leave it there. And we'll, Thank see, you so we'll much. see you all next time. See you later, you guys. Remember, you can find all these podcasts at drdrew.com. The Dr. Drew Podcast, the This Life Podcast, and the Adam and Drew Podcast, which is available five days a week. Find them all on iTunes and rate us five stars. Subscribe and get it first. And if you're really happy, click on the Amazon banner at drdrew.com to help support the show. We'll thank you for it. If you join the email list via drdrew.com slash contact, we'll send you a weekly infusion newsletter with Dr. Drew's News. We're so grateful when you get in touch. We read all your emails and we'll bring you the subject matter you want to hear about. You live.